One of the Bible's major objectives is to humble us so that we realize that we are under the care of God, who are dependent on Him for everything, including life. In other words, we can't save ourselves. In order to get this point across, Scripture constantly gives us a sharp critique of humanity and our institutions, including the concept of kings and cities. These concepts are critiqued because inherently embedded in them is the idea that humanity can rule and protect itself apart from God. This is our sin, the problem of humanity. So what's the solution? Find out in today's episode of The Way. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. first in what will be a series of podcasts to explore the major themes of Scripture. My prayer is that these podcasts will act as a general introduction to Scripture, and I'll make them available on my website, dustinlyon.org. What I found in my ministry is that most people want to learn more about Scripture. They want to read the text, but they tend to run into several problems. The first is that they start reading from page one of Genesis. When they get to the long lists of names or the legal codes, they get frustrated because they don't know what's going on or how to understand these sections. So they end up putting the Bible down and not picking it up again. The other problem for most people is that their biblical literacy education stopped in grade school. This is typically when their church stopped offering Sunday school. So, what happened is that they learned some of the famous stories of the Bible, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Moses and the Ten Commandments, David slaying Goliath, and stories of Jesus, for example. But they don't know what those stories mean or how they tie together. Most importantly, they don't know how to use the stories to grow spiritually or how to apply them in their everyday lives. This would be like if we stopped learning math in grade school. Could you imagine being an engineer, an architect, an accountant, or other such professional with only a grade level understanding of math? It would be ridiculous. It's also equally ridiculous to expect Christians to walk the way if they have an elementary understanding of Christianity's sacred texts. After all, aren't we all called to be professional Christians? As a crutch then, What most Orthodox Christians end up learning is basic church history or the physical practices of their faith, how to make the sign of the cross, how to venerate icons, etc. Sometimes they learn a bit about theology, such as God is Trinity or that Christ is two natures in one person. But an astute student quickly realizes that these sorts of dogmas are not the content of Scripture. Yes, it's true that Scripture shows us a Messiah or Christ who reveals God so perfectly that he is one with God and thus one of the Holy Trinity. But this isn't the teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. 
No, rather, Jesus' teachings and parables are of a quite different nature altogether. For the authors of the Old Testament, the evangelists and St. Paul, Scripture is functional. To grow spiritually and to mature, one has to put the gospel into practice. One has to grasp the meaning of the cross and how it applies to one's life today. For example, what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Christ? So the content of Scripture is instructional and in many cases quite down to earth. In other words, it is, as I said, functional. This is especially borne out when, over and over again, God asks us to keep his commandments, to be obedient to the instruction given to us, and to walk the way of his statutes. In fact, every Sunday at Orthros and in the Orthodox funeral service, we sing, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Lest our prayer be in vain, it behooves us to learn what these statutes are. Note that all this is about how one lives. It's an action to do rather than an order to grasp the intricate nuances of theology. For one who has spent time with the Bible, there really is no alternative to learning how to grow spiritually, how to walk the way, than by re-engaging and reading scripture. To help accomplish this, I'm going to spend some time exploring some of the major themes of scripture. My hope is that once you understand the themes and see how they help you grow spiritually, you'll see how the various stories expand on those themes. My goal is that this will encourage you to engage scripture and become a lifelong reader of the sacred text. In this project, I've decided to stand on the shoulders of giants. My seminary professor of scripture, Father Paul Tarazi, and world-renowned scripture theologian, N.T. Wright. So our first theme is shepherdism. And the bottom line, the solution to our ego and pride, which tells us that we can do it on our own, is to learn to humble ourselves and become like a shepherd, depending fully on God. One of the Bible's major objectives is to humble us so that we realize that we are under the care of God. We're dependent on him for everything, including life. In other words, the Bible wants us to realize that we can't save ourselves. Only by God's grace are we saved. Yet, humans are a stubborn species. We believe that we can go it alone without God's help. This is the main drive of the story of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. That's an edited version of Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. The people in the story forgot about God, and they thought they could, in essence, become God. So they gave it their best. But God humbled them, and Babel fell. It's the same story, if you will, after Moses frees the Hebrews from the tyranny of Egypt. 
After receiving the law at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were asked to trust God. He was to look after them as they entered the promised land. The idea was that they would be a people who have God as their king. He would shepherd them through life. When a national leader was needed, God would appoint a hero, which we call a judge, to look after Israel and deal with whatever crisis was befalling them at that time. The key point is that the Israelites weren't in control. God was. But after some time, they wanted a king just like all the nations around them had. So they petitioned God to appoint for them a human king. In other words, they wanted to demote God. They wanted to fire him as their king. Samuel, who was at that time a prophet of Israel, warns them, saying, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys, and he will put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That was 1 Samuel 8, verses 11 through 18. In summary, Samuel is saying that a king will enslave his own people, just like Pharaoh had enslaved them in Egypt. In other words, if the people decided to trust in a human king rather than in God, they will find themselves under a tyrannic ruler and things will not go well. Trusting in the walls of cities, the armies of a king, and other such human institutions is not freedom from God, but rather slavery to a tyrant. But humans are stubborn, and the Israelites insisted on a human king, thus God gives them what they want. It's like a parent dealing with a child who just won't listen. At some point, the parent gives in to the child's demands, thinking, well, I'll let my kid do it his way and see what happens. And when things don't work out, he'll learn his lesson. This is exactly what happens to Israel. Saul ends up being a disaster of a king. And David ends up committing adultery and murder. And when David takes a census against God's will, it causes 70,000 people to die from pestilence. Having a king who causes the death of 70,000 of his own people doesn't sound very successful to me. Ezekiel sums up the problem of the kings very nicely. You, being the king, eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. That's the people. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness have you ruled them. That's Ezekiel 34, 3-4. 
In the end, kings of Israel and Judah end up being so evil that God destroys Jerusalem and sends the people into exile in Babylon. The whole point of the monarchy is that people wanted to do away with God. They wanted to rule over themselves. And to do this, they built walls around their cities and recruited men to serve in their armies. Human kingship did not work out very well, and it still doesn't. The lesson is that our dependence, our human achievements and accomplishments, is futile. They either pass away and become forgotten, or they become the means by which we are enslaved to tyranny. Refusing to submit to God and instead trust in the pride of humans is the ultimate expression of self-ego. God's solution to the human ego is what Father Paul Tarazi calls shepherdism. A shepherd looking after his flock in the field is out in the elements and therefore completely dependent on God for everything. A shepherd isn't looking to become a king. A shepherd isn't dependent on human inventions such as cities, walls, or armies to save himself. A shepherd is completely vulnerable to nature, attacks from animals, and other roaming villains. Thus he has no alternative but to trust in God and walk the way of God's commandments. If the shepherd doesn't listen to the instruction he's given, how to care for his flock, find food and water, and how to live out in the fields, then it could spell death. Thus obedience to God's law is critical. Some of the greats of the Old Testament, those who obeyed God, were shepherds. Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, was a shepherd in the fields, and when he offered the first fruits of his flock to God in sacrifice, Genesis tells us that God found that sacrifice acceptable. Contrast this with his brother Cain. Cain was the first one to create civilization and found a city, but he was a murderer. The scriptural message is clear. Cities, that is, human achievements, is founded upon violence and is not in line with God's instruction for the way. Moses was another shepherd. After he first fled Egypt, he married the daughter of a shepherd and became one himself. God used this lowly shepherd, who probably had a stutter when he spoke, to free the Hebrews from the most powerful man in the world. Imagine, Moses trusted in God. He was obedient to him, and as a result, this shepherd was no match for all of Pharaoh's army. And after crossing the Red Sea, Moses trusted God to shepherd them through the desert and into the Promised Land. Listen to how the psalmist speaks of God and Moses. God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, Psalm 77, 20. And God struck all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. That's Psalm 78, 51 through 53. And of course, we can't forget about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Psalm 23, 1 through 3. And there's David. When he was a mere shepherd boy, before he was king, he was able to defeat the great giant Goliath by listening to God. But, as I recounted above, when he becomes a king, things go south. 
It isn't what Mel Brooks once said. It isn't good to be the king. Israel and their kings finally hit rock bottom when God destroys everything the kings had worked for. Their city, their temple, their palace, everything. And he sends them into exile in a foreign country under a foreign king. But God didn't forget about his people. And through the prophets, he promised to rescue them. Notice the language he uses, though, is the idea of a true shepherd over Israel. Here's how Ezekiel puts it. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered. I will bring them out from the places and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. That's Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. In other words, God will do what the egotistical kings refused to do. He will not enslave his people, forcing them to build his palace, grow his food, or die in his army. No, instead, God cares for his people. He provides them with a law and instruction so that they can walk the way and find life, even in a desert. But the catch, we have to give up our ego and pride and depend on God to be the true shepherd just as an earthly shepherd lives submitting to God for protection, shelter, and food. So summing up, we recount our bottom line, the solution to our ego and pride, which tells us that we can do it on our own, like a king, is to learn to humble ourselves and become like a shepherd, depending fully on God. We've called this idea shepherdism, and as I said, it's one of the major themes of Scripture. So how does this help us understand the Bible? Well, as we read through the various stories, we are now able to recognize if Scripture is being critical of human activity, such as kingship or armies or cities. If the answer is yes, then we know that it's trying to break our ego so that we can fully depend on God. We can ask ourselves when we see this, what characteristic aspect of pride or ego is being displayed? How is scripture showing us the downfall of such intentions? What's the proper response, or how can we turn to God instead? We can also recognize shepherding images in scripture. These images show us how God cares for us through his instruction and how we can learn to trust in God to walk the way. As we read through the story, the questions become, how do the characters submit to God? What's the result or outcome? If the character is a shepherd, how are they listening to God's command? What actions do they take? Or what instruction do they act on? What sort of leadership qualities are being displayed by being a shepherd instead of a king? And the answers to those questions may be applicable to our lives. I think you'll find that shepherdism appears all over Scripture, and if you pay close attention, it'll show you how to walk the way. 
This has been The Way with Father Dustin Line, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network.